Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This week, Mike is joined by Eva Peshova and Luis Simone of the Center for Security, Diplomacy and Strategy in Brussels to discuss how the Indo-Pacific factors into European foreign policy and strategic thinking. Eva and Luis analyze the recently released EU strategy for cooperation in the Indo-Pacific, how the EU is handling the China challenge, and areas for potential cooperation between the EU, US, and other partners in the region like Japan, Australia, and India. Welcome back to the Asia Chessboard. Today we're going to go a bit transatlantic, and I'm joined by two of the leading thinkers in Europe on Asian geopolitics, Eva Paisova is the senior fellow for Japan at the Center for Security, Diplomacy and Strategy, CSDS in Brussels, and is affiliated with the French Foundation for Strategic Research. Among other positions, Louis Simon is director of the Center for Security, Diplomacy and Strategy at the Brussels School of Governance and director of the Brussels office of Elkano Royal Institute. Both are leading the debates across the Atlantic and within Europe about how we manage China and in important ways, which we'll talk about, it's not all about China. It's about the Indo-Pacific, it's about other allies and partners. And for U.S. strategy, the transatlantic angle has been frequently overlooked. We tend to think of our regional partnerships and alliances in regional terms and forget the incredible connectivity Europe has with Asia, which we'll go into a bit just for American listeners who may not be following that. But first, uh, always interested in how you got here. I'm trying to imagine the Simon family somewhere while two-year-old Luis is uh, in the crib thinking, I hope he grows up to be an expert on Asia. Um, assuming that didn't happen, Luis, we'll start with you and then go to Eva. How did you get into this line of work? Maybe that is how it happened. <laughs> Hi, Mike. Uh, th- thanks, thanks for having us. Uh, well, actually, I, w- I would say that unlike Eva, uh, who's been a, an Asia expert for a, for a while, I've been sort of rebalancing towards Asia more recently in the sense that my main areas of expertise are European security, U.S. foreign policy and transatlantic relations. And my PhD focused on British, French and German approaches to the never ending debate on transatlantic relations and European autonomy. It was really around 2010 when the center of gravity in the debate on U.S. grand strategy shifted towards Asia that I started thinking more systematically about the implications of Asia's rise and the U.S. rebalance for Europe and the transatlantic relationship. It then sort of became clear to me that Asia was not Las Vegas and that what happens there won't stay there and it will affect Europe and the transatlantic relationship in all kinds of ways. So I then started traveling to Asia regularly, especially Korea and Japan, and embarked on two fascinating journeys uh, that have taken a good share of my time, setting up a first Korea chair in in Brussels uh, at the Free University of Brussels, and then a Japan program at our new Center for Security, Diplomacy and Strategy, which was launched uh, last year. And we're thrilled to have Eva leading our team and our program, which uh, has been, I think, a, a great success so far. That Las Vegas line is the best one-liner we've had on this podcast in at least a year. So we don't have an award for best (laughs) one-liner, but if we did, that would be it. Um, Eva, how about you? Yeah, well, uh, well, thanks, Mike, for having us um, as well. It's always a pleasure to discuss. Uh, Well, for me, it's been really a lifelong passion, as Liz said, and it probably is your case as well. I'm I'm blaming samurai stories probably in early childhood, frankly. But uh, on a more serious note, I think in the, in the, the kind of more recent or more professional uh, interests 
starts uh, at the beginning of 2000s with the piracy crisis in Southeast Asia. I guess it was sounding very um, adventurous and romantic. And that really made me more interested in maritime security and its impact on, on kind of, you know, as a student of international relations at that time, I thought uh, that was really the angle that I wanted to continue. And then eventually combine my interest, my kind of lasting interest and passion for Japan with maritime security, kind of culminating in, in my PhD in Singapore years ago, which was on Japan's and, and, and China's engagement in maritime security and, and kind of mechanisms for maritime cooperation in the region. And if you look at it, being a European, eventually maritime security is the physical link that you know brings us closer to to Asia. Of course, there's the Eurasian dimension that we may be discussing, but uh, in the context of of today's debates on the Indo-Pacific, maritime security is really the the umbilical cord that uh, that has been kind of bringing us closer to East Asia. So I also think I first got interested in Japan reading uh, Shogun in maybe seventh grade. My my dad was deployed to Vietnam, so I knew a little bit of Okinawa, but. I always found the Czech Republic was the most active on Asia of the former Soviet space uh, member states, at least in the early 2000s when I was in the Bush administration. The Czech government was very interested in human rights in Asia, very interested in democracy, and punched, I thought, above its weight. So I, I imagine even at a junior level, it must have been interesting. You were working on Japan uh, in Asia at that time? or? Well, there was, uh, there were actually even historically, I mean, uh, th there's very good connections with Japan, mostly cultural. I mean, there's always been a connection with Japan, but there has been historically, obviously, very strong connection with Vietnam. Uh, let's not forget the role of Czechoslovakia at the time in Southeast Asia and in, in the communist, uh, communist bloc. Good weapons. Yes. Uh, <laughs> they made very the good weapons in those days. Yeah. Uh, there's so many actually. <laughs> Funny stories uh, behind this, but you know that that's the reason why actually Czech Republic has the largest uh, immigration Vietnamese community in in Europe because we used to exchange the weapons for work power, <laughs> and so now we have a second, third generation of of, of uh, you know Czech Vietnamese community that actually comes from from that period. But uh, let's not forget that there was also the Czechoslovak involvement on the Korean Peninsula as well. So um, yeah, for a small country, there is uh, quite a history. So let me set the stage a little bit for listeners to the podcast who are largely focused on on the Asia-Pacific, Indo-Pacific, and have not maybe focused on Europe as much. First question for you both. We'll start with you, uh, Eva. How big is the Indo-Pacific China in the overall European foreign policy debate right now? I mean, in the U.S., it ranks, you know, Joe Biden's interim strategic guidance had eight points when was strategic competition with China. But in reality, it's in the top two or three easily, maybe the most important issue. How would you rank Asia policy, Indo-Pacific, China debates in the European foreign policy zeitgeist and debate right now, Eva? And then I'll ask Louis as well. I will rank it high enough. Uh, and perhaps we are, you know, in in our little bubble and we've been dealing with the Indo-Pacific all the time. So we're maybe a little bit biased because that's all we see. But as you know, the EU has released its uh, council conclusion called the strategy on the Indo-Pacific uh, just last week. So the momentum is, is, is really has piled up and is currently there. And it's an accumulation of, of many things. It's an accumulation of, of several wake-up calls when it comes to its policy with China. And it, I, I would say that that's really the main driver to this overall shift towards Asia and, and Indo-Pacific that you alluded to at the very beginning. I mean, I may go into, into several of those waves if you want, but 
to, to what I see really was first the, the realization somehow around 2015, 16, the realization of the, of the political and security impact of, uh, of some of the Chinese economic policies in, in Europe. So it started, you know, with, with some of the member states eventually opposing some of the common positions, be it on the PCA ruling in 2016 or in the Human Rights Council. And we could see a direct connection between what seemed to be uh, an innocent investment policy to something that has grown much, much, much bigger. It was also the kind of overall disappointment, I would say, uh, of, of China under delivering on its, on its promises. So within the, you know, 16, 17 plus one framework, for instance. And, and finally, of course, the, the whole scandals around Huawei and 5G networks that were more accentuated now with, with the COVID uh, pandemic. So the whole China policy really drives this shift. And it became really omnipresent. I mean, it's it's not just the debate in Brussels, but within the member states, both feeding each other. So I don't know, I would say number two, after the transatlantic or NATO dimension, number two, three, for sure. For geopolitics, but maybe somewhere below climate change, would you say? No, I would, I would, I would hope it's above climate change. It's different. It's different. It's, it's different. Agenda. It's apples and oranges. You should different. be able to do both. Yeah. Louise, what do you think? Uh, is is the is this now the top issue for the transatlantic relationship, for example? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if the top issue. I I, I pretty much agree with what Eva was saying. You're right that the in the Pacific is is at the center of U.S. foreign policy debates in in Europe. It's certainly gaining traction. Uh, it's certainly gaining traction in Brussels. But I have the feeling that the European foreign policy debate and security policy debate is still stuck on on this question of how to strike the right balance between Eastern Europe and North Africa as last of the Middle East. And I think that goes both for the EU and NATO. So I would say that the Indo-Pacific is certainly becoming more important, but I'm not sure it's still at the top of the transatlantic agenda. What is actually, and here I, I couldn't agree more with Eva, what is actually gaining more centrality in the transatlantic conversation is China. But not necessarily China in an Indo-Pacific context, but more China as in as it relates to the future of the of the multilateral order, global economic governance, even climate change itself. You know that Europeans, they have this multilateralism frame. So more China in a global context. And that's getting the Indo-Pacific conversation sort of through the back door. And it means it is gaining more and more centrality as well, in, even if indirectly. So I have made the point you you all probably have as well in your uh, circles that rising powers historically are revisionist first in their neighborhood. That's what the U.S. did in the Western Hemisphere. It's what Japan did. It's what Germany did under Bismarck. It's almost, it's regardless of regime type, but, you know, rising powers try to consolidate power in their own neighborhood first, and then the revision does or does not spread to global institutions. And then there's a big debate now, of course, about how revisionist China is globally which we should get to. But regionally, there's no doubt. I think there's a 80 or 90 percent consensus among experts in the U.S. at least that Xi Jinping's vision for Asia is revisionist. It's to, you know, markedly reduce American power and leadership, weaken and split apart U.S. alliances, coerce smaller neighbors. So when and I know you both know, know this because you both spent so much time on India and Japan and Korea, and not just China. You see the multipolarity in Asia in a way that I historically have not seen from many European thinkers about the region who follow the money, which is almost all China. Do you think, are you guys having some success in what I think you're saying, which is, you know, that this is a regional problem in Asia. It's not a China problem. Are you finding there's more attention to Japan, to us, India and Australia, to the overall 
dynamics of the region, or is it still largely about China, even when you're looking at the regional dimension? First of all, I agree with you. You can't separate the global from the regional, right? They're, they're very much intertwined, uh, which is why, and this relates to your question, Europe, Europeans cannot address the China question without addressing the Indo-Pacific question and without getting into the nitty-gritty of Indo-Pacific uh, geopolitics and security. And I, and I think there's a growing realization of that fact in Europe, and, and, and that partly explains the growing interest in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, the French have put out a strategy, the Germans have put out a strategy, the Dutch, now the EU, and NATO is also having uh, more and more discussions on the Indo-Pacific. And that is precisely because there's this realization that you cannot tackle China as a, as a global abstract challenge that is not grounded in the, in the logic of, of geography and geopolitics. And you, so you need, to, you need to connect both. And ever you're a Japan hand and, you know, focused on the broader Indo-Pacific. Are you finding there's resonance in Paris, in London, in Brussels? to the idea that Europe needs to do more with Japan, more with India, more with Australia and Korea and Southeast Asia. Is that a thing now? Is that a, is that a growing trend? If I may jump in, that's actually precisely the point of, of the German strategy, of the Dutch strategy, and even to a certain extent to the French strategy, with, which are all those that have driven the current EU strategy. It's one of the specificity. It's not China-focused, actually. It's quite explicitly actually uh, mentioning the need to work with like-minded partners. Uh, so even though you won't find concrete names, it means Japan, it means Korea, it means ASEAN, it means India, and it means, of course, the U.S. So if you, you know, when historians look back on this period in transatlantic relations and Europe's thinking about China and geopolitics, the last month or so is really one of those, potentially one of those deflection points. You had the conclusion of the European trade agreement with China, which, you know, frankly, displeased the Biden administration. I think they felt that it was on the merits, maybe not a terrible deal, but to welcome the new Biden administration by signing a major trade deal with China was not a good look for transatlantic relations. And then very shortly afterwards, you had the EU sanctions over Xinjiang and then the incredibly heavy-handed Chinese sanctions against Merricks and other scholars and parliamentarians. Where's the debate right now? Are people wounded and scared? Are they angry? Are they resolute? Where is this going in the next phase of the debate, uh, Eva? Do you, I mean, you, were you, you guys were not sanctioned, right? <laughs> but you did, your institute, I think, was one of the many institutes in Europe that spoke out in support of Merricks. And so where is the debate going right now? Do people regret that? sanctioning over Xinjiang? Has it sort of doubled down resolve about the importance of democratic values uh, and the nature of China? How, where, where do things stand, do you think? So we're not sanctioned yet, I would say, yeah, definitely yeah. On, the, on, the, on the list. No, I, I would say w what you're saying is it's more like double down the, the resolve. It doesn't really, I would say it didn't make a huge difference. It didn't change people's minds, I would say. Uh, those who were persuaded that they're on the right path, they will continue doing it and criticizing and, and you know, standing up against human rights and, and, and all that uh, they stand for. And those who will uh, focus on trade uh, will continue focusing on trade. It's quite interesting, actually, the, the CHI or the Comprehensive Agreement on Trade on Investment with China. You would still, again, have probably an unchanged opinion among those because most of the business community would sort of applaud it as, as a win. I mean, that's how it's portrayed. You know, it, it was about guaranteeing market access to and better conditions to European companies, and that's what it obtained. And then, of course, the security community and, and commentators were skeptical and, and as surprised, perhaps, uh, about the timing and all the things that we tend to reproach to 
the agreement when it was released as the new U.S. administration. So I don't think that that really changed that much. You would have the businesses that will continue engaging and be supporting this and then the rest. What about parliaments and the public, the ones who maybe didn't have a strong position, Louise? Do you think it shaped that debate? In those places? Yeah, I think it is uh, having an impact, particularly at the level of the European Parliament, which has to ratify the agreement. And right now it's not looking good. It's not looking good. And, and here I think I would perhaps point to a difference between the way in which the Trump administration approached uh, the, the China conversation and the way in which the Biden administration did, because Trump did not play the values card. And as it turns out, that's actually quite effective in terms of rallying uh, support in some quarters in Europe, right? So a lot of people who were perhaps rather indifferent to the whole debate, uh, if framed in terms of geopolitical competition and so on, are actually playing ball uh, when it is about values and when it is about human rights and democracy. So right now, it's at this moment, it's, it's not looking good for the treaty in, in Parliament, but things, of course, may change. We just went through a, an escalation, if you will. So we'll, we'll see how the situation evolves in the in the coming months, because there's still a, a very strong business constituency pushing for the for the agreement. So we, we need to see. Luis, are you still teaching in university with all your positions and responsibilities? I'm curious <laughs> how you find the younger generation's views. In our surveys at CSIS of the American public, and Pew surveys and Chicago Council, you know, there's a marked negative turn in views of China across multiple, you know, farmers, labor, intellectuals. But the one demographic that's less alarmed about China in the U.S. in relative terms are people aged 20 to 30. You know, the less worried that China is an existential threat, relatively speaking, I've always thought when I've lectured in Europe, I've always been surprised because in Europe, I get questions from students that are much more skeptical about the U.S., much more optimistic about China. I think some polling shows this as well. What are you finding that the, the view is among your students and among younger people across Europe about China right now, and, and especially in the wake of what just happened? That's a great question. I, 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 let me first say that whatever I may say on, on this matter is not substantiated in, in polling or, or data. You, you guys are doing great work there. Uh, just, just my impression. Uh, my impression in general, and that also applies to students, is that uh, the perception of China in Europe has taken a negative turn over the last year, year and a half. I think you're right in what you say in general, but I think there's been a change over the last year and a half or so, particularly since COVID, actually. That has led to an increasingly negative perception of China. And then if you put that together uh, with the whole Hong Kong situation and the Uyghurs and now Taiwan and values sort of uh, taking center stage in the China conversation in a way that they were not before, I think that is having an impact on, on, yeah. on Europe. Yeah, you can see so clearly in the Indo-Pacific strategies of uh, the Foreign Office of The Hague of France's uh, Foreign Office, uh, in the Australian White Paper, the Japanese Blue Book and National Security Strategy, you can just see how much democratic values are coming to the fore. I and mean, I've written a lot of these national security documents for the U.S. government. And, you know, in the 90s, we didn't say that much, actually, about democracy and values. But it's such a prevalent part of of democracies, national security strategies now. And it's, it's clearly reacting to what we're all seeing, which raises the question, how much solidarity is there really in the quote unquote West, which is not a great term because some of the most important democracies are not in the West now, but maybe we should transition a bit to the transatlantic agenda on Asia. What about democracy and human rights? Do you think the Europe and the U.S. are pretty well aligned on the human rights question? We've 
Both of our, you know, our governments have sanctioned China over Xinjiang. We've taken strong stands for the most part on Hong Kong. Do you think we're well aligned, Eva, on, I should ask the Czech first. <laughs> Do you think we're well aligned on human rights and democracy right now? Or is there, are there gaps? Well, on the main lines, yes. Depends how ready we are to, to stand up for it and what sort of actions we're capable of putting on the table. But yes, in principle, I think that there's a, there's alignment. And Luis, you do a lot of work on technology. We were emailing about this mm-hmm. uh, in the Congress right now, in the Senate. There's a bill called the Endless Frontiers Act, which is likely to pass fairly soon, create possibly $100 billion of industrial policy. The Republicans don't want to call it that, but that's what it is to for AI, for high tech. And I can tell you from talking to members of Congress, they can picture, as I mentioned in my email, where Japan, Korea, Taiwan fit in. They're still trying to figure out how does the U.S. and Europe, how do we create a T12, you know, in half of the 12 or European. So what, what do you, you, you're engaged in this debate a lot right now, Louise. What, what do you see as the, you know, areas for greater collaboration, the pitfalls, obstacles on the technology front, 5G, AI, the whole, the whole bit? Yeah, thank, thanks. That, that's a, that's a key question, I think, going forward for the transatlantic relationship. I, I'm not a technology expert myself, but I'm trying to think about it's sort of the geopolitical implications of, of this discussion and the whole technological decoupling. Well, that was, that was more like Trump language, but the substance is still there, right? And the bottom line here is that, I mean, China is very important for the EU economically, not only for the EU, also for Japan, obviously, and, and for, and for the US itself. And then there's this whole discussion. We talked about this on security of supply, supply chains and so on, which is partly about diversification and diversifying from countries like China, but it's also uh, in an EU context is also about autonomy and strategic autonomy and self-reliance. And so now the discussion on strategic autonomy goes beyond security and defense and includes critical technologies and goods and, and the whole discussion on European industrial and technological champions. That's very much, I would say, perhaps a French approach, but there are other perspectives in the European Union. You talked about the Dutch. The Dutch and the Spanish uh, put out a joint non-paper recently on what they call uh, open strategic autonomy. So they talk about uh, the need for EU operational sovereignty, which they define as the capacity to promote uh, uh, an agenda of its own, but they warn against protectionism and underscore uh, the, this idea of keeping the EU's economy open and preserving uh, strong links on trade and technology in particular to the outside world, especially uh, to key partners like the United States, but also conceivably Japan and other like-minded partners. So I think that this Dutch-Spanish paper actually provides a, a great foundation for greater transatlantic coordination on technology specifically. Uh, there's, as you know, Mike, this proposal for an EU-US Trade and Technology Council And I think we're likely to see convergence on this front, even if there are still some issues related to privacy, to taxation. Uh, But hopefully, I think we'll get some progress at the upcoming EU-US meeting uh, in in June on on the technology front. Do you think Japan will be an important part of this? When you look at artificial intelligence and semiconductor fabrication, it's really the Dutch who are most important, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, US. You know, when you look at biotech, there are a lot more European economies that are really important. It's kind of issue by issue. But on the big, big things where we disagree, like like antitrust and data privacy, you know, Japan is kind of halfway in between where the Europeans and the Americans are. Do you think this is something we can do trilaterally, the old G7 process? How can we make this move? I, my sense is if it's just transatlantic, we may get stuck on our own baggage. What do you think? 
I agree with you. I, I think the EU is also pursuing in, in parallel its own agenda with, with Japan, which is broadening and it's deepening and very fast, I would say. Eva, Eva knows a lot more about this than, than I do. The way I see it, the transatlantic link is sort of the foundation, but I think it's pretty clear that you need to go beyond that, right? Particularly if there's a China angle to the conversation, which there is, right? You cannot yeah. have that conversation without uh, Japan being at the center of the conversation. And that, and that has many, many different angles, right? I mean, you mentioned the G7, there's also the Quad and the question mm-hmm. of how the EU is going to engage with the Quad, if at all, now that the Quad is, is gaining more and more traction and, and has a technology, a very strong technology component. So uh, my sense is that first, we need to see to what extent the EU and the US can meet somewhere on the technology front. And then uh, on that basis, I think we'll see what else can be accomplished in terms of working with other partners, which will happen in parallel, of course, but, but perhaps more in, in clusters. Ava, you're in the middle of the uh, EU-Japan dialogue. Do you see that uh, agenda taking some real cues from the Brussels-Tokyo relationship? Absolutely. It's, uh, well, as, as, as Luis said, it's definitely, uh, one of the top priorities and actually one of the successes so far in the, you know, there's a working group as part of the strategic partnership agreement, you know, working towards some of the concrete ideas and data free flow with trust, for instance, is one of the, uh, one of the success stories and digital connectivity tech is definitely one of the issues that, uh, you know, are ahead on the agenda. Can I ask, does, does that, that's Abe's idea for reciprocity and digital uh, trade. Is, does that resonate? In Europe, does, does he has he gotten people's attention? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Hmm. I think uh, well on the, on the European side, it was the GDPR, the, the data protection regulations, and on the on the Japanese side, it would have been that. So I think altogether, you know, there's this ambition to see it serve as a as a reference on on regulation in, in when it comes to cyber and digital connectivity, and there's definitely a potential to achieve that, along with with other issues. So tech is definitely one of them, but uh, you know, connectivity is definitely ahead on the agenda among other things as well. We should talk about security, which is in some ways a natural topic for NATO, but an awkward topic for the EU in the transatlantic relationship. But you both mentioned the Quad. The Quad is a thing. It's real. I mean, there will be, I am certain, a, an in-person summit this year of the Quad. The QE2 and the Charles de Gaulle carrier battle groups are going to be going to the Western Pacific. Where do you see other European member states, NATO, plugging into the Quad, into the US-Japan alliance? Do you think it's going to be a kind of an a la carte a frigate here, a destroyer there? Or do you think there's like some real debate right now in Europe about a more prominent role in the security architecture in Asia? Eva, you're the maritime strategist. We should start with you. Well, quad is one thing, but frankly, I mean, there's a lot of space dedicated to security and defense in the new strategy. There's a lot that the Europeans, uh, whether at the member state level or even sometimes on at the EU level, do in terms of security in Asia and in the Indo-Pacific. But it's all sorts of transnational security issues. So we already mentioned cybersecurity, it's, it's maritime security, you know, kind of short of a naval deployment under an EU flag, if if you really want to push uh, that way, it's terrorism, counterterrorism, it's 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 non-proliferation, it's really all sorts of issues that we yeah. are actively dealing with, and, and you know building capacity of local actors, etc. But that aside, you're of course aware of the French naval uh, presence in the Indo-Pacific. The Germans, the Dutch are considering sending frigates to even some of the most hot, the hottest security hotspots. Let's not. Name them, and we're all aware of the political messaging of the symbolic value of this presence. So even a small frigate, you know, you would have this 
argument, yes, but without the UK, you don't really have the capabilities. But frankly, a small frigate can make a difference if we consider the symbolic value of it. And if we already see the Chinese pushback against this, and you do hear quite a lot about it. With the Quad, that's another issue. I mean, we have been already discussing, even the two of us, what's the value of joining the Quad as opposed to working with the Quad. We know that the French and other member states have been approached to join and, and have been openly reluctant to do that. I think that that's something that may be here to stay. But it is part, it is composed of these like-minded countries that we work with anyway. You know, the French are conducting exercises with the Indians, with the Americans, with the Japanese, separately, all together. You know, it, it really, uh, then we can get into the whole business of, you know, how to call it or, or how institutionalized it should be. But we are working with the Quad on issues of common interest. You said earlier, as a constructivist, Dave, are you, do you, are you a constructivist? Well, I do believe from experience that there are some forces that are, you know, difficult to be explained by purely rational theories. Yeah, it's impossible, even a hardcore realist like myself, it's impossible to be a regional expert and not have a little bit of constructivist in you. So fair enough. Luis, what do you think about the security picture? Is yeah. there more to come from Europe? So, I mean, I, I agree with what Emma just said. I, there, there are many angles to this question that you were talking about the quad, which is a whole debate. You were talking about the differences between member states, P perhaps just, just the general observation as far as the EU is concerned when it comes to securing the region. My sense is that particularly when it, when it comes to maritime activities, the main entry point for Europeans in the Indo-Pacific, perhaps with some exceptions, uh, will be transnational threats, right? And low-end stuff like piracy, disaster relief, environmental security at sea, and so on, as opposed to high-end interstate conflict or even deterrence, right? Having said that, uh, it's not like these two worlds are totally disconnected from each other, right? Because by helping certain regional partners, for instance, in Southeast Asia, build up their capabilities in, in maritime domain awareness or ISR or command and control, Europeans can actually help them uh, develop a sort of latent capacity to balance against China if need be in, in the future as well, right? So it's true that most European countries may be reluctant to engage in the region operationally from a military standpoint, or at least directly. But if you put together Europe's emphasis on working with, with like-minded partners, particularly Japan, I would say, its commitment to capacity building in Southeast Asia, its arms transfers uh, to many countries in the region, and the arms embargo on China, I think all that points in the same direction, which is that Europe is working, of course, in its own way, but is working to preserve regional balance of power. So I think you're right on something, both of you, when you talk about what the Pentagon sometimes calls phase zero, all the security stuff that's not high-end war fighting, you know, when we're not actually in a war. Everything from humanitarian and disaster relief to um, participating in exercises and all the things you described. And it's valuable because it shows Europe has some skin in the game, that Europe is, is part of the fabric of security practice in Asia. But to go right to the high-end conflict for a minute to end with, you've probably seen that the outgoing commander of the Indo-PACOM, Admiral Davidson, has said he thinks there's a danger of a Taiwan crisis, of a Chinese use of force in the next five years. That's a little beyond where most security experts are in Washington. But 
I don't know anyone who thinks it's less dangerous today than it was a year ago. And there are various theories why. Part of it is, you know, an argument that Beijing sees a closing window. But I can tell you that in the, in the think tanks in Congress and the administration, people are worried about it. And when in Washington, we sort of think through how do we dissuade China from using force? There's obviously a deterrence, and that rests almost entirely on the U.S. and, to some extent, Japan, maybe Australia. I don't think the Belgian army is going to be fighting in the Taiwan Strait. So it's not about the kinetic side. But when the Central Military Commission makes a decision to grab Ituaba or use force or not, there will almost certainly be a discussion about geopolitics, about whether the world will align against China. And and I hate to say this, but my guess is right now in Zhengnanghai or in the CMC, the argument would be made, Europe can be neutralized. Yeah, Japan, the US, Australia, but Europe can be neutralized. I'm not sure they're right, but I worry that that's how they see Europe right now. Are there ways, are they wrong? Will there be cost imposition in the use of inventive force by Europe? Are there ways that can be made more demonstrable to Beijing to show, you know, I mean, what I like about the QE2 and the Charles de Gaulle going is the Chinese don't really like it. And London and Paris say, too bad. That's the kind of, not gratuitous, not to, to pick fights for gratuitous reasons, but to demonstrate Europe won't be intimidated. But I don't, my own sense is there isn't enough of that yet, and that, that Beijing may calculate Europe can be neutralized. Louise, why don't you start us off, because people can't see this, but I see you nodding vigorously. So why don't you go first, and then we'll let Ava <laughs> wrap this up. Yeah, th- thanks, Mike. That, that, this is, I think this is a great uh, topic, uh, um, not least because it's not often discussed, right? We yeah, we tend to stick to the to the low end stuff, which is where Europeans are by and large comfortable. Of course, it's very complicated because I, I don't think there is any sort of agreement in terms of how far Europeans should go in the security sphere in terms of engaging in the region. Some countries are able and perhaps even willing to go rather far. Certainly the Brits. I know they're not a member of the EU, but they are a leading European country. So certainly the Brits and to some extent the French, although that's complicated by autonomy related uh, considerations and signaling and so on. But I would perhaps actually flip the question because it's not 100% clear to me to what extent an Asian country like Japan, for instance, or even the United States would want a strong European security engagement in the region when it comes to deterrence, right? It may well be that it's in the interest of the U.S. or Japan for Europeans to actually concentrate their military efforts in Europe so that the U.S. has more bandwidth to properly resource its rebalance to Asia and its deterrence posture in Asia. I don't know, maybe you can tell us, but I feel we Europeans have been getting contradictory signals from Washington on this one. I remember that in, in his farewell speech in London as Secretary of Defense in 2012, Leon Panetta actually encouraged Europeans to rebalance alongside the United States to Asia militarily. But after Russia's annexation of Crimea, the message coming from Washington was, you Europeans should focus on holding the line in Eastern Europe and let us and our Asian allies do the heavy lifting uh, when it comes to deterrence in Asia. Now, having said that, I think that if there is a conflict, I find it very difficult to imagine that uh, Europeans, in particular the French and the British, but perhaps also others, would stay neutral, right? Because Europeans are allies of the United States. And the Washington Treaty is not a one-way street. It's not a mechanism for the United States to defend Europe. It's a one-for-all and all-for-one uh, mechanism. Mm-hmm. It's a two-way street. And in fact, as you know, Mike, the only time in history that Article 5 was invoked was after September the 11th, right? Right, right. Uh, so if there is a conflict building up in Asia, I think the United States is going to 
have expectations about its European allies. And if those expectations are not met, and I realize that perhaps from a military standpoint, Europeans are probably not going to tip the balance, right? But they can provide, particularly the, the British and the French that have blue water navies and global reach in terms of their military and intelligence capabilities. I think they can assist in a number of ways. And, and diplomatically, certainly, I would, I would expect them to take sides. Yeah, I think there are two calculations that will shape the Chinese decision-making. One, how much military pain will the U.S. cause China? You know, sunken ships, missiles on targets, how much kinetic pain? And then second, how long will China be isolated economically from the world community? And I worry that in the wake of what happened in Hong Kong, Beijing is concluding they can get away with a lot. That's what worries me. And so I, I would almost trade the French and British carrier battle groups for a robust, I don't know if this would ever happen, but for a robust statement from Brussels that use of force or unilateral change to the status quo will lead to consequences in Europe's relationship with China, which has never been clearly stated. If you see what I mean, it's the economic and geopolitical price and cost imposition that probably matters more. The important part of the military side is it shows a willpower, a willingness to take risk, which connects to the second one. What do you think, Eva? Well, that's an excellent question and a notoriously uh, difficult one. Of course, a reason why we're not having that many discussions is just that it's, you know, one way to test alliances is to never test them. <laughs> Don't ask hard questions. <laughs> exactly. So, no, I, I fully agree with Louise. And the question is, you know, what a strong statement can do. But I've been more thinking, actually, what is the plethora of things that we can do before it happens? Because here we're talking, and, and frankly, there are you know war scenarios and, and discussions that try to simulate this situation, and, and we come to the you know conclusions that yes, we can at most issue a good statement, but there are certainly things that we can do uh, while waiting for it to happen. And you know, you started by talking about the Czech Republic kind of shooting above its waist, and it reminded me of uh, this incident about six months ago, last September, of uh, the the visit of the Czech Senate Speaker in. Uh, to, to Taiwan and his address to the legislative yuan at the time saying, I am Taiwanese. And if you remember, there was really, it made the headlines, I think, in, of, of quite a few journals and made definitely our, our Taiwanese colleagues quite happy. And I'm sure that that's perhaps one way to go about this it is also to signal to Taiwan to Taiwanese people and to China, that this support is there, that try to perhaps integrate to some extent Taiwan into the international system and try to communicate and build those bridges. Because those bridges, if worse comes to worse, and, and, and we get to this scenario that you're mentioning, will be needed anyway. And it is not just this kind of you know, scarce parliamentary diplomacy that is going on at the kind of non-state level that uh, you know will catch up all that needs to be caught. And so, yeah, I think we don't, you know, instead of speculating what we do when in the worst case scenarios, we should start engaging now, perhaps. It's going to be, I, I predict that this Taiwan issue is going to be more and more of the transatlantic dialogue. We, we're not going to be able to avoid it. It's, it's a problem that's getting harder. Yes, Louise, go ahead. Why don't you? Mike, if I may just very quickly pitch in on this one, because I think I, I really like how you put it, that you would trade the aircraft carriers for a statement. Uh, Although and, to be clear, I'd prefer to have both. Yeah, no, I understand. <laughs> I understand. But perhaps what what I would say is that, and I hear, I agree with you in terms of your skepticism, you may not get that statement in peacetime, but I would be surprised if you didn't get that statement in wartime. So I yeah. realize that from a deterrence viewpoint, that's probably not very good news. 
But I would be surprised if there were to be a kinetic conflict in Asia involving China and the United States. Uh, I would be surprised if Europeans did not clearly position themselves. So the important thing now, Louise, is for the U.S. and Europe to make sure that China is not surprised by such a statement, that China would expect such a statement. And I think that's a role for 1.5-track dialogue, quiet government dialogue. I can't tell you how exciting it is to be able to have these conversations with European friends, strategic, balanced. And the underlying theme, although none of us has said it explicitly, but the underlying theme, I think, for all of us is this is not about containing or undermining China's success. It's about preserving a rules-based order that Europeans and Americans and Japanese and Canadians and Australians have built and that we want to welcome more countries into. And maybe the hardest part of all this will be convincing of Beijing of that fact, but it is what I think animates us all. Um, terrific stuff. We'll be watching all your terrific work and looking forward to more discussions. Thanks very, very much for joining the HHS board today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at csis.org and click on the Asia program page.